From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Friday, December 21st. I'm Marco Werman. A week after the Newtown shooting, the National Rifle Association steps into the debate. We'll examine the NRA's global reach. Also, we'll hear about the rituals different cultures embrace to create a space for grieving. These traditional rituals, they just guide you through in a way that provides, I think, a tremendous amount of support at, at, you know, the most difficult times. And later, John Kerry is nominated to replace Hillary Clinton. We find out what world leaders want from our next Secretary of State. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Today, people across the nation observed a minute of silence in memory of those who died a week ago in Newtown, Connecticut. In many communities, bells tolled 26 times in honor of the children and educators who were gunned down at the Sandy Hook School. That was at 9.30 this morning. An hour and 15 minutes later, the National Rifle Association broke its near silence since the shooting. The country's most powerful gun lobby came out with a proposal to put armed guards in all of the nation's schools. Wayne LaPierre is the NRA's executive vice president. The only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. The NRA has long been an influential voice on domestic gun laws and policies and has been reaching out to influence policy on an international level as well. The world's Arun Roth has been looking at the NRA's international interests. Uh, When did the NRA start to go global, Arun? It was around the mid-90s when the United Nations was becoming interested in regulating the small arms trade. Small arms are something that called the attention of the NRA, and they thought that there might be potentially restrictions on domestic trade. So that was when they registered as an NGO so they could lobby the UN. Also took part in forming an an international group called the World Forum on the Future of Sport Shooting Activities. This is a group, an umbrella group, that comprises organizations like the NRA in countries around the world. And they actually have made their presence felt in other countries. Yeah, in uh, Brazil and Canada in particular, the NRA and their advisors helped defeat a 2005 referendum in Brazil that would have been a a substantial gun control measure. And in Canada, they've been involved with uh, lobbying, strategizing, helping them also work towards loosening gun restrictions. So what exactly is the complaint then of uh, the NRA and the World Forum about the treaty at the U.N.? Well, they believe that because civilian weapons are mentioned, there could be a regulation registration regime that would come in and involve them. I spoke with uh, Natalie Goldring, who's at Georgetown, a senior fellow with security studies there who follows the small arms trade. She said that there is nothing in the treaty to indicate that. This is a clip from her talking about that. And then Thomas Mason, who's the executive secretary for the World Forum on the Future of Sport Shooting Activities, and uh, his response to her take. The U.S. government has been as clear as it possibly could be that the private acquisition of weapons and the private ownership of weapons will not be covered by an arms trade treaty. They make it clear that the NRA simply isn't telling the truth. Well, again, that's just simply not true, that the treaty scope uh, includes all firearms, 
and uh, a lot of countries on the floor of the, of the United Nations have stated that specifically. There's been a huge debate over whether or not the treaty should include civilian farms, and so far we've been on the losing side of that debate. Again, that was Thomas Mason speaking there, lobbyist for the World Forum on Sport Shooting Activities. Arun, what will happen with this small arms treaty at the U.N. going forward now? Well, what happened in uh, in July was the U.S. ended up asking for a delay to further work on the language, and a lot of observers, including uh, Natalie Goldring at Georgetown, say that was because of the election season. The U.S. did not want to have this fight then. So it's basically been postponed. They'll pick it up in March, possibly with a new atmosphere uh, right now, both with the shootings in Connecticut and President Obama having a second term. It might be a different uh, scenario. The world's a ruin raw. Thank you so much. Thanks, Marco. As we heard, bells tolled this morning in Newtown, one for each of the 20 first graders and six educators killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School last Friday. It was a marker, and for those in grief, there will be many more. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. Grief, it could be argued, calls out for structure. All the ceremonies that I came across had this sort of distinct arc. Sarah Murray researched bereavement around the world for her book, Making an Exit. It allows for a very great period of intensity at the beginning. You think of sitting shivers seven days when you have a really intense period of the family coming over. And then they sort of tail off. You know, So in a, in a month you might have something else, in three months you might have something else. I mean, a lot of ceremonies across the world have this in common. That is really powerful in helping people to get through grief because grief, grief can be chaos. Common to many cultures, Murray found, is that sense of extending space between formal moments of grief as time goes on, leading to some kind of closure. These traditional rituals, they just guide you through in a way that provides, I think, a tremendous amount of support at, at you know, the most difficult times. The expression of grief, she says, is combined with the containment of grief. This is the opening of Gustav Mahler's intensely personal Kindertortenlieder, Songs on the Death of Children. Now the sun wants to rise as brightly, she sings, as if nothing terrible had happened during the night. Karen Painter is a Mahler specialist at the University of Minnesota. There's a grimness to it that the sun dare come up, that life can go on as normal with the loss of, of the children. The opening song is bleak, no doubt about it. And it's not fully private either. So you have the very intimate world of a single person singing, and yet you have the public world of the orchestra. And I think that addresses the dilemma of grief, that it's private and then it's also public at the same time. There are five songs in the Kindertortenlieder. Gustav Mahler wrote the music in the first years of the 20th century. The poems were written some 70 years earlier by Friedrich Ruckert after the death of his own two children to scarlet fever. Ruckert wrote more than 400 poems in a kind of manic effort to cope with his loss. Mahler selected five that captured the procession of grief towards eventual acceptance. 
As the songs continue, there are references to light and radiance, children as beacons of promise, and the music is striking in its melodic simplicity. At the time Mahler wrote the Kindertotenlieder, composers and painters were experimenting with new modern ideas, complexities that often alienated audiences. But here, there's a stark clarity. Death was no longer an ordinary part. Of modern life,、um, a century earlier, half of all deaths were children, and and by the point of Mahler composes, the death of a child as it is today is something shocking, is something that we have difficult time confronting, and so Mahler found this to be the purest form of grief. The Kindertotenlieder present a portrait of grief in motion, an inability to recognize what's happened, then an outpouring of sorrow, the merging of memory with the present, and finally, at the end of the fifth and final song, the children quote, rest as if in their mother's house, frightened by no storm, sheltered by the hand of God. Kindertotenlieder has been called the heart-wrenching sound of farewell. The song cycle premiered in 1905. Two years later, Gustav Mahler lost one of his own daughters to scarlet fever. For the world, I'm Alex Galifant. All week, we've been gathering different perspectives from around the world on the tragedy in Newtown and on the many issues brought to the forefront by the shooting. We've gathered all our coverage into one playlist on SoundCloud. Listen and download at theworld.org. In the same way that Newtown has preoccupied this country, India has been preoccupied this week by its own horrific crime—a brutal gang rape and beating in a bus in Delhi on Sunday night. It's triggered national soul-searching in India about a problem that seems to have grown out of control. Rupa Jha is the anchor of Global India, a TV program broadcast by the BBC's Hindi service. She describes what happened last weekend. On Sunday night, a 23-year-old young girl. She had gone for a movie show with a male friend, and she was coming back. And on one of the busy roads of India, she boarded a bus. This is a public transport, and in that bus there were not many people. There were around five of them. And、um, after that, these five men who were already there in that bus started kind of molesting the girl. The man with the girl, her friend, objected to it. And、uh, that actually triggered the whole horrific incident of the girl being raped, gang raped, in an extremely brutal fashion. And、uh, for 31 kilometers, the bus driver kept driving, and they took turns to rape her, and did it extremely brutally, so much that she's almost on death bed. And then both the girl and her male friend were thrown out. Half naked on the streets, right, and has gone through several surgeries so far. It's just shocking.、Uh, protests in Delhi all week,、uh, and news from the High Court there that the police may have been slow to react to the crime as it was happening. Somehow, this rape has pushed many Indians to demand action. Why? 
Yes, this is the interesting question that, in fact, Marco, we have been asking ourselves that, you know, rape, sexual violence against women in India is really not a news and it never surprises us or someone like me who is kind of, you know, lived most of my life in Delhi because we all of us have faced similar kind of, uh, you know, harassment, not exactly rape, but different degree of harassment, sexual harassment on streets of Delhi. This, I think, it was so horrific. It was done in such a cold-blooded fashion that it really shook the whole society, the nation, and they said, enough is enough. And uh, it really brought them together. Media got into action. And um, many times when media picks up uh, an issue, it does get that kind of public momentum. And I think it really helped in this case. Has there been kind of an old school divide in India between how lawmakers, mostly men, see the gravity uh, of the crime and sexual harassment and how women live the threat and experience such crimes on a daily basis? Absolutely. I mean, not that there aren't laws and and the punishment for rape crime is seven years and all that. I think the problem, basic problem lies at how men of Indian society and the country really uh, look at women. And since the role of women, it's changing extremely fast pace. I think that is where the whole negotiation is going on. And men in general have a very stereotype attitude and cultural attitude towards women and the role of women in society. I think the conflict starts there. We've got the Newtown shootings in this country that have pushed gun control up to the top of the White House's agenda. Do you think uh, the gang rape of this poor young woman in Delhi is going to be the moment that things change for women in India? Are you confident about that? No, no, not at all. On contrary, I think it's just, uh, you know, like it's just an eyewash, you know, social networking, media hype and all that, that all this comes out as a bubble, but it goes out like a bubble. So I'd be very, very skeptical about uh, any concrete change. And it's not change in the law. The law may change, you know. But the thing is, how would you change the cultural attitude of a society of 1.25 billion people? Mm. It's a long haul. It's a really a long process and doesn't happen in a day or two. It's it's really uh, starting from the scratch. And is any government ready to do that? Are we as society ready to teach our children uh, how to respect women? It's a huge project. Rupa Jha is anchor of Global India, the BBC's television program. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. This year, we mark the passing of a woman whose case has helped to change the way medical care is given in this country, though she never knew it. Leah Lee was the profoundly disabled daughter of Hmong refugees living in California. She suffered from epilepsy and had a catastrophic seizure at age four. Her family were newcomers to America and questioned the medical care doctors wanted to give their daughter, fought it even. And though Leah slipped into a vegetative state, they chose to care for her themselves at home for 26 years. Leah Lee died this August. Her story was immortalized by author Anne Fadiman in a 1997 book called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. Here's the author reading from an email she received from Leah's sister after Leah passed away. Everyone was having difficulty sleeping last night. I know from my mom the house was still. No more sounds from Leah, her presence forever strong in all of our lives. But she has made such a huge impact to us and to the entire world. 
She has taught so many people about love, strength, courage, happiness, pain, suffering, and sorrow. Now, your book, uh, which many of our listeners, I'm sure, know, uh, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, it tells Leah's story from her birth and through her medical challenges. But more crucially, it examined the clash of two cultures, Western medicine and traditional Hmong beliefs. For years, her parents and the doctors who cared for Leah fought about her care. What exactly were they fighting about? The doctors kept on changing Leah's prescriptions, uh, trying to give her optimal care. Her parents were resistant for a variety of reasons. They didn't speak English. They couldn't read. They couldn't read the prescriptions. The prescriptions were confusing. The meds were hard to administer. They tasted bad. They had side effects. But in addition to those things, they were quite ambivalent about Leah's getting any treatment at all because they viewed epilepsy as a kind of spiritually distinguished illness. They thought that Leah, like uh, many Hmong uh, with epilepsy, might grow up to be a shaman because epilepsy is viewed as a kind of an entree through its seizures into a realm that the rest of us don't have access to. And this escalated to such a point that the doctors actually obtained a court order to remove Leah from her family for about a year and put her in an American foster home so she could be given her meds exactly as prescribed. Mm. I mean, and it wasn't just two different perspectives on treatment for Leah. After she suffered brain damage, her doctors thought of her as all but dead, but her family didn't. That's right. Her doctors and other people at the hospital often, with a slip of the tongue, would say when Leah died, even while she was still alive. That is, they all viewed her as having essentially slipped into, if not a non-living realm, at least a kind of a worthless realm. But her family felt that she was very much a part of their orbit. Her birthdays continued to be celebrated. She was always in the center of the living room with her nieces and nephews crawling around her and over her. Mm. Can you explain or do you understand why Leah Lee lived for so long? I mean, the the doctors did not expect her to live much past uh, her four years of age when she had that terrible seizure. I can't give a scientific explanation, but I can give an emotional one. I think love kept Leah alive. I'm not a particularly mystical person, and I know that that sounds crazy, but I believe that being held in her mother's arms, having some sort of persistent sense and touch memory perhaps, not being abandoned in a nursing home – was what kept her alive. Her family truly loved her. They're still grieving. Hard, perhaps, for outsiders to understand that Mm. because she was so difficult to take care of and she couldn't interact with the family in any standard ways, yet she was its gravitational center. Leah's family's challenges were kind of nicely encapsulated by one of her doctors, Neil Ernst, who treated Leah early in her life. And and he said, in some sense, the Lees were giving up control of their child to a system that they didn't understand. Having looked at these kind of situations, how common is that experience of being totally at sea once you step into this Western medical setting for Hmong refugees? I think that the farther one gets from the sort of center of our culture, the scarier and more confusing the medical system gets. And this was one of hundreds, probably thousands of similar cases among Hmong refugees where a lack of understanding that went beyond The words, a lack of understanding that was cultural and not linguistic, compromised the ability of the two sides to communicate and to understand each other. How much do you think Leah's life, this girl from Hmong parents and her story, changed the attitudes and practices of healthcare providers? 
I think it has made changes, although I wouldn't be so arrogant as to claim that this book was the only cause. I think it was part of a of, of a zeitgeist in the late 90s. People were thinking about some of the problems imposed by the ways in which we care for patients, the 15-minute blocks of time, all of these things – created a number of problems and many people were having some of the same ideas that I had. But the book is read in a lot of medical schools and residency programs and I would never say that this was Leah's purpose in life. Her life would have been vastly better if she had not been ill and I'd had no one to write about. But I do have to say that her life had meaning. And Fadiman, what do you hope people who are reading your book in, in medical schools and social work classes are, are taking away from Leah's story then? One lesson. They think they stand at the center of the universe, but they do not. To their patients from other countries, they seem just as exotic as those patients may seem to them. And the ability to put themselves in their patient's shoes, to see the illness from the patient's perspective, to understand that Western medicine can do many things but not all, changes relationships between providers and patients from one of coercion and compliance Mm. or noncompliance on the patient's part to one of collaboration. So – She's gone now. What about her and uh, Leah's story is most enduring for you, Anne? Well, she changed my life. Her family changed my life. Seeing how her mother raised her children changed the kind of mother that I was. Seeing the closeness of that family changed the way I dealt with my own family, the importance of grandparents, the importance of having extended family around you. I'm not sure that my husband would have proposed if he hadn't been nudged to do so by Leah's mother who dressed me up as a Hmong bride (laughs) once when he visited uh, in order to render me irresistible. She changed me in any number of personal ways, but she also has awed me with the lessons that she has for the American healthcare system. The kinds of patience and listening and humility that we don't always have. I think that she has taught any number of doctors and nurses to listen more carefully, not make assumptions, and to try to see things from the patient's point of view. Author Anne Fadiman chronicled the life of Leah Lee, the daughter of Hmong refugees, in The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. Leah Lee died in August at the age of 30. And thank you very much. My pleasure, Marco. You can read an excerpt from The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, that and video of author Anne Fadiman, all at theworld.org. I'm Marco Werman. So what better place to wait for the end of days than next to a Mayan pyramid? Where I am now, it's basically an important sacred site and people who want to connect with that kind of energy are here today. You see people doing meditations, raising incense, they're looking up at the sun. That's ahead on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report online at Medtronic.com. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. All over America, people are hitting the road. An estimated 93 million Americans will drive long distances during the holidays. Many are headed for Mexico. This time of year, border crossings are full of travelers heading south to see family. It can be a dangerous trip, given the drug war and high crime levels on Mexican highways. In fact, the State Department urges Americans to defer non-essential travel to northern Mexico. Those who go anyway should take some precautions, as Shannon Young reports. There are a number of things that highway travelers can do to minimize their risk exposure in northern Mexico. The easiest is to carefully choose the time of day when they travel. We've seen their trend change in the sense that they only travel during the day, so they will not travel the Mexican roadways at night. Blasita Lopez directs the Tourism Bureau in Laredo, Texas. She says that while drug war violence on the Mexican side of the border has hurt recreational tourism, it's created a surge in hotel occupancy rates when it comes to seasonal travelers on their way into Mexico. Thousands of visitors coming from the U.S. interior use Laredo as an overnight stopping point before heading into Mexico. When I say thousands, I don't exaggerate. We have overflow areas where when the hotel is full, we know that we need to send them to an area where they can park and sleep overnight in their vehicles. So we have overflow parking areas where they can park and be able to do that, even if it's just a few hours of sleep that they get um, behind their own wheel. We are prepared and we do temporary bathroom stations and things like that. On the other side of the border is Nuevo Laredo and the Mexican state of Tamaulipas. Some highway sections there have been compared to the Bermuda Triangle in which people have gone missing without a trace. But very little information about road conditions circulates within Tamaulipas. Infiltration of government institutions by organized crime is an open secret and the traditional media is often intimidated into silence. So drivers have learned to rely on the workarounds that some residents of Tamaulipas have built to disseminate information and keep safe. Social media, especially Twitter, has played a huge role in getting the word out about security risks. And more recently, a program known as Zello, which turns wireless devices into walkie-talkies, has come into use. The radio method is a more effective way for reporting on the road because it doesn't involve texting while driving. A Twitter user who goes by the handle The El Teto monitors both networks and distributes relevant alerts from Zello on Twitter. He's one of the best sources of up-to-date information on the Tamaulipas roadways. Teto says travelers coming from Texas should avoid crossing at Miguel Aleman or other small-town bridges along what used to be a popular tourist corridor known as the Frontera Chica. That area is now patrolled by organized crime. Instead, Teto recommends crossing only at the Tamaulipas border's three busiest urban spots, Nuevo Laredo, Reynosa, and Matamoros, where bridges are guarded by the military 24 hours a day. The big recommendations are to fill up on gas in a border city or in the U.S. in order to head out with a full tank and not stop, not even to use the restrooms. Just leave the state completely in the time between 6 a.m. and 5 p.m. because by 6, it's already getting dark. And in the area around San Fernando, it's best to drive in front of a bus or an 18-wheeler because they are connected to GPS and information systems and are being monitored. These recommendations were unknown to Alberto Rebollo when he traveled through Tamaulipas with his father in December of 2010. They left the border city of Matamoros in the early afternoon and made a stop to eat and go to the restroom. 
When a truck full of menacing criminals showed up, Rebollo and his father ran into a convenience store. What followed was a strange scene with the workers inside. I asked them to call the police, and they told me they couldn't, that there was no phone. So I said, okay, at least tell me where I am. What's this place called? And they said, we don't know. At that point, I started to get really scared because I thought if these young guys who work and live here can't even tell me what the place is called, the danger is real and they're under threat. Then I looked over to where the food vendors had been just a few minutes before and saw that they had vanished. They picked up and left in a flash when they saw a problem. Just minutes before, there had been people around and suddenly the store was empty. The guys working there were freaked out. The food vendors were gone. It was just me and my father. Rebollo called Mexico's equivalent of 911 on his father's cell phone and described to the operator where they were. When state police arrived, Rebollo says he had to pay them to provide escort to the nearest city. That experience helps to explain why many Tamaulipas residents surveyed by this reporter recommend carrying food, water, and in the case of small children, even a potty for bathroom purposes, all to avoid making any stops along the way. While Mexican authorities have vowed to beef up security along the major highways over the holiday season, it's probably best to follow that advice and to monitor conditions via the crowdsourced, citizen-run civil protection network in Tamaulipas. For The World, I'm Shannon Young. A lot of people have traveled to Mexico in recent days, not just to visit family, but to be there today for the end of days. It's a winter solstice today here in the Northern Hemisphere. It's also a day that's generated a lot of buzz among historians and New Age spiritualists. They say an ancient Mayan calendar predicts the end of an era or possibly even a doomsday. So for our GeoQuiz, we're looking for the name of a famous Mayan site on Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. It's where people have gathered around ceremonial fires near an ancient Mayan pyramid, blowing conch shells and generally bearing witness to the prophetic moment. Who better to make sense of all this and to answer our quiz than our friend and reporter Frank Contreras. Tell us where you are, Frank. What's around you? Well, I'm surrounded by people dressed in white. There's a huge pyramid with very um, characteristic steps going up it. And uh, it's in the location called Chichen Itza. Chichen Itza, Yucatan, Mexico. Chichen Itza. Now, th- this site, uh, what's the significance of it for the uh, prophecy of doomsday today, the 21st of December? Well, this is one of the most important pyramid sites of the Mayan civilization. It's one of the most spectacular pyramids in what was the Mesoamerican civilization of, um, of those ancient people. They, of course, were great mathematicians who knew how to read planetary movements and, and grow their crops according to that. And they used advanced mathematic skills to create pyramids and other structures. And their civilization is said to have disappeared. Experts say they don't know why that occurred. But where I am now, it's basically an important sacred site, and people who want to connect with that kind of energy are here today. Is this doomsday watch at uh, Chichen Itza a serious affair for true believers or kind of a party? It's really kind of a mix of the two, I'll tell you. Very few people I spoke with today believe that the world is going to end on this Friday the 21st. It's the end of the Mayan calendar date called 13 Baktun, and it was a more than 5,000-year cycle that basically came to an end on this day. Some people read that as meaning the end of time, that today 
it will all come crashing down. And, but, but scholars that I spoke with who are also here at the Pyramid site today tell me that, no, in fact, that's not the case. It's just the end of a cycle and a new one will begin. And so uh, people here are, are really more in a celebratory mood, I would say. They're happy to be here. You see people doing meditations, raising incense. They're looking up at the sun. You see a lot of people here, actually, from all around the world, people speaking Russian, Arabic, Chinese, and of course, there are a, a huge number of Americans here. I would imagine with tens of thousands of people there, Frank, there are going to be a few hawkers trying to cash in on, on the madness. Absolutely. You can buy obsidian stone axes and arrows, the kinds that were used uh, back in pre-Hispanic days. You can find Aztec calendars. Of course, that has nothing to do with the Mayans, but right. um, they're on sale here. And you can see any sort of drums and these kinds of things, um, symbols from the ancient people here, uh, things you can wear around your neck, something you can hang on the wall if you'd like, plaques, um, all sorts of things. And so, th- yeah, people are definitely cashing in on this. So aside from the, the end of the world fear mongering, what is the experience like of being there at that pyramid? I mean, did you climb up the pyramid, Frank? You're not allowed to do that, actually. The, the Mexican government is very careful in protecting these pyramid sites. And, and so they let you come up to it to a, you know, a certain degree, but you really can't get on the pyramid or touch it in this case. Basically, what we saw here are um, you know, a great number of people from around the world, but what you don't see are the Mayan people who are still, of course, alive, the, the ancestors of this great civilization. They live in villages just outside of the Chichen Itza pyramid ruin sites, and a lot of these people still speak the Mayan language. Many of them are losing the language. They, they try to dress more Western style now, they leave behind the, the Mayan language of their ancestors and opt to speak Spanish instead. They, they tell me that's so they don't feel excluded. A great number of them, of course, are living in very poor conditions. And so what you have are the ancestors of the Mayan people just outside of the pyramid areas uh, struggling today, probably making about $20 a day You know, when they work a full day, uh, 10 to 12 hours. And then people here in the sites enjoying this gorgeous uh, archaeological site but, you know, having nothing to do with the, with the Mayan culture. And so there's this kind of strange divide going on here in this magical spiritual moment. Yeah, it's a pretty stark contrast. You'll be pleased to know, Frank, that the U.S. Geological Survey's earthquake specialist said that absolutely nothing out of the ordinary had been detected in seismic activities, solar flares, volcanoes, or the Earth's geomagnetic field. But humorous, you know. Uh, can you give us some fake sound effects of the end of the world, some rumbling or something? <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Frank Contreras at the Mayan ruins of Chichen Itza, the answer to our geo-quiz today. Always good to speak with you, Frank. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Marco. Bye. A lot of people in China were worried about the end of day's prophecy. You can hear our story on China's apocalyptic fixation at theworld.org. Also, thanks to all who played our geotexting game today, especially Al in Lake Grove, Oregon, Larissa in Seattle, and Macharia in Lenexa, Kansas. To those of you who incorrectly guessed Cancun, Machu Picchu, or Oaxaca, try again next time. Just text GEOQUIZ, one word, to 69866. It's official now. President Obama has nominated Senator John Kerry to be his next secretary of state. Assuming he's confirmed by the Senate, the Massachusetts Democrat will replace Hillary Clinton, who's stepping down as the nation's top diplomat. The president had nothing but praise for Kerry this afternoon. I think it's fair to say that few individuals know as many presidents and prime ministers or grasp our foreign policies as firmly as John Kerry. And this makes him a perfect choice 
to guide American diplomacy in the years ahead. Senator Kerry's foreign policy credentials are impeccable. The former presidential candidate currently heads the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's embarked on high-level diplomatic missions before, including some for President Obama, and he can draw on his experience as a Vietnam War veteran. Kerry's nomination was widely expected in Washington ever since U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice withdrew her name from the running. James Traub is a fellow at the Center on International Cooperation and writes a weekly column for foreignpolicy.com. Last month, he wrote a piece titled, Secretary Kerry, Would John Kerry Do a Good Job Filling Hillary Clinton's Shoes? And Jim Traub, I guess you kind of called it. Uh, but do answer that question. I mean, after Hillary Clinton, how much is expected from John Kerry? I think that if you were to try to find somebody who was most like Hillary Clinton, you probably would have found John Kerry. Just as Hillary Clinton had this enormous built-in advantage that whenever she went anywhere in the world, she was Hillary Clinton. As a representative of the United States, she brought enormous credibility, authority, star power, glamour. People were excited to see her. Kerry was a guy who came with an ace of being president of the United States. As Obama said, he knows every head of state, and he knew their father, and he knows their kids. And so he has this great authority and legitimacy, and that is one important part of being secretary of state. I mean, I think this is separate from the question of what one would say about his worldview, whether he is a thinker, whether he is an unconventional thinker. I don't know that's what Obama wanted. I think maybe he didn't. You, you cite those connections, but a lot has changed in the world since John Kerry uh, had dealings with sometimes not very savory heads of state, you know, in their mansions and palaces. Mm-hmm. Um, how easily will he adjust to these new realities of diplomacy in places like Egypt, where he doesn't really have the same access as he once had? Yeah, I think you could make even a sharper example. I mean, this was somebody who went to Syria many times and convinced himself and convinced others that Assad was a man we can do business with. And so, yes, that whole world is being swept away in many places has been swept away. Assuming he's approved, which seems pretty likely, where will John Kerry's energies uh, be focused first and foremost? Kerry said to me when I spent a lot of time with him a few years ago, he, we spent time in Pakistan and Afghanistan together, and he recognized, though sometimes it was hard to pull it out of him, what a mess our relationship with both countries was. And he said, the only way this thing is going to be solved is with a negotiated solution with the Taliban. We're never going to win a military battle there. Now, that's going to be a super hard thing to do, but it won't happen without a lot of intense American engagement. This is a case where Kerry does know all the players. He has more credibility with both President Karzai in Afghanistan and with General Kayani in Pakistan, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, than any other American figure. Uh, so if if anyone can push these guys a little out of their comfort zone into making some kind of agreement with the Taliban that actually will be lasting, he'd be the guy. Mm. So what areas uh, is John Kerry weak in? He is someone who is deeply bound by convention. I mean, to just be psychohistoric for a moment, this is a guy who lived in an extremely waspy world but was not one of the rich kids and always tried incredibly hard and with great success to move himself towards the inner circle. And I think the consequence of that is that Kerry is someone who was always looking around to see what the kind of lay of the land in terms of opinion. And so he tends to adapt himself to that mainstream and stick to it rather narrowly. And so, I mean, it has always struck me that here's a man with tremendous physical courage. We know about that because of his record in Vietnam, but intellectually a very cautious person. 
James Traub, always good to speak with you. Thanks for your time and thoughts. Okay, thanks so much. Stick around. Musical top picks for 2012 are next. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So we're still here, Mayan prophecy notwithstanding, which means we can actually reflect on the past 12 months and right now some musical reflections. We want to spin a few of our favorite musical picks from 2012. And joining me in the studio to share her picks with me and my picks, the world's global hit producer, April Peavy. Hi, April. Hi, Marco. Can't wait to hear some of your music. Yeah, and me, yours. Uh, we've got five apiece. We'll be able to hear three apiece. I'm going to go first. Uh, this is NECA. Her CD, Soul is Heavy. Uh, NECA is is half German, half Nigerian. She grew up in Nigeria. Uh, Soul is Heavy is her second release in the U.S. You'll hear a strong reggae vibe in her music, but she often turns to Nigerian Afrobeat and its political voice. And you'll hear that in this tune. It's called VIP, which is a riff on Bela Kuti's song of the same name. And in both cases, VIP stands for Vagabonds in Power. As you touch on me so, as you break my heart, as you do the thing we could do to me. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah, NECA from her album Soul is Heavy. Great album. Well, my first pick is a, a group from Sweden. They're called The Amazing. It really is an amazing record. I love this album, too. This is one of those records. Their album is called Gentle Stream. And this is an album that just creeps up on you, and it just completely grabbed me. The structure of the songs and the overall production, it's just such an interesting and compelling listen. Here's their song, Dogs. guitar work, too, reminds me a little bit of Neil Young. It has that sort mm. of 1960s sort of production. Yeah, it's funny. I thought of the Buffalo Springfield when I first heard this album. Fantastic pick, April. So what's your next pick? My next pick goes back to old school high life from Ghana in West Africa. This album is from, uh, it was a real discovery for me, guitarist Ebo Taylor. He's one of the pioneers. Uh, he's older now, and this new album of really fresh high life from him really a, one, one of my standouts for the year. We spoke with him earlier in 2012. He's a sweet man, and he broke my heart with a, the final song on the disc, which is about his late wife in memory of her. I want to play a more upbeat number, though, that uh, really revels in old-school high-life rhythm. It's called Snusakwan. Very cool. Love it. So that's Ebo Taylor, his album Apiaqua Bridge. April, what's your next pick? Well, my second pick is one that I pulled from my summer pick list. It's uh, Holly Cook. She's a UK singer. This is her self-titled album. 
And as I mentioned back in the summer, what's interesting of her biography is that uh, she's the daughter of ex-Sex Pistol drummer uh, Paul Cook. That's right. And uh, as she said in a British paper, it's hard to be a rebel when your dad's a Sex Pistol. <laughs> I love that quote. That's a great quote. Uh, this album is really anything but rebellious. It's just a really easy, wonderful listen. Here's Holly Cook in the song Milk and Honey. That's Holly Cook, and the song is Milk and Honey. You made life easy for me because I was like, this was on my final like triage. And I was like, oh my gosh. You've got another one to show. Let's yeah, do, do you mind if I go next? No, go Two ahead. in a row? Yeah. Well, the last album that, that's on my list is Dr. John's Lockdown, and uh, it was produced by Dan Arbach of the Black Keys. And what makes this a, a quote-unquote global pick is the Afrobeat and Ethiopian influences that's on this album, which is something, Dr. John, I don't think he's ever done before I, on I don't album. recall it. And you turned me on to this, and I just got through it. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's so Ethiopian. Yeah, it certainly is. And it, it's interesting because earlier in the year, Dr. John gave an interview to The New York Times, and he said that when they recorded this album, that uh, Dan Arbach insisted that they eat Ethiopian food and listen to African jazz. Here's the track Revolution from Dr. John's Locked Down. Blind eyes of justice. Straight out of that Ethiopian Addis groove from the 60s. Most definitely. Dr. John Lockdown. So I, I think there's one more. You have the last call. I have the last pick here, and actually it's a pick that we both have on our top five. Uh, this was an easy one for me. It was actually a very tough year to come up with five, but if you had to come up with one, this would be it. This is Chimaya from Brazil, uh, the late Chimaya. Died a number of years ago, but uh, the great people at Luacabop Records in New York came out with World Psychedelic Classics this year, Volume 4, and it's all about Chimaya. I had known a couple of his songs before, but this was such a treat to hear this. And, I, you know, if you could burn grooves into uh, a CD, I would have worn this one out uh, about four months ago. I love it. Yeah. There's a tune called Bom Senso, uh, one of the few songs on the album, actually, in Portuguese. The rest he wrote in English. Jacinti, saudade. Já fiz muita coisa errada Já pedi yeah, I was so happy when you turned me on to this album. You had said, have you heard this album yet? And I said, no, I haven't gotten to it. You said, you'll love it. Yeah. And you were so right. Well, we each got five apiece. We couldn't play all the music on the program today. So uh, we've got all the picks, your five, my five, at theworld.org. 
the world's global hit producer, April Peavy. I always love it when we do this exchange of lists. Yeah, me too, Marco. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Again, all our top five are at theworld.org, including our 2012 favorites from our guest DJs around the globe. The world's theme music was composed by Eric Goldberg from the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston. I'm Marco Werman, and now I can officially say, literally, this is the end of the world. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Annenberg Foundation, by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live healthy, productive lives, GatesFoundation.org, the Carnegie Corporation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and by the PRI Program Fund, supporting informed risk-taking in public radio programming. Contributors include Ken and Lucy Lehman, who believe that winning workplaces respect, reward, and invest in their employees. PRI Public Radio International.